Welcome to the Classics Podcast Does Ancient History A-Level, brought to you by the Classical Association. Welcome back to part two of our podcast on the reasons for the defeat of Athens in the Peloponnesian War. We will pick up in 414 and thinking about the final 10 years of the war. So Paul, at this point, I want to come back across to you. Now, this is a I think a very interesting other potential mistake, which doesn't get a lot of airtime often, but it's to do with a revolt that's happening in the Persian Empire, which the Athenians back. So we have this character called Amorges, and he is mentioned by Andosides again in 329. His father has been Pisuthnes, who is the, the satrap of Lydia, in certainly in the 440s when uh, the Samians had revolted and he'd given them some help. And it seems that at some point after 420, Pisuthnes rebels against Darius II, who had become king in about 424. And it seems that Amorgis carries on with or takes up again this revolt in about 414. Now, this is obviously trying to overthrow the Persian king and the Athenians back him to do this. And in the end, he gets hunted down. And this makes Darius, no doubt, particularly angry and resentful towards the Athenians. So, Paul, is that another terrible mistake? What were they doing here? Well, the Athenians, uh, as I've said, um, had always been, if you like, anti-Persian since the great Persian invasion of Xerxes, whereas the Spartans had um, withdrawn from being aggressively anti-Persian. The Athenians may have made a peace uh, and they may have renewed the peace in the mid-420s with Darius II when he came to the throne. But even though they were formally at peace, there was always an itching. We've been talking, as Maria has so nicely said, about Athenians' uh, aggressive character. The Athenians were always constantly wishing to meddle, if you like, in the Persian Empire in pursuit of, let's face it, what their overall um, goal was in taking on the Persian, liberating the Greeks of Asia permanently from Persian control. Obviously then uh, incorporating them in their own sphere, but nevertheless taking them out of the Persian one. So if a satrap rebels internally, satrap being a provincial governor with immense resources, both of money and of men, appointed directly by the great king in Susa or in Persepolis in Iran, these are really powerful people. If they go into revolt, wow, you know, it's like uh, being in a sweet shop for the Athenians because they're doing what the Athenians want, which is to disrupt the normal um, Persian control of all of Asia. So in 414, as you mentioned, James, actually the Athenians are doing three things which are extremely risky. One, Sicilian expedition. Two, I've mentioned they're supporting Amorgis. Three, and this is what the Spartans later say is their justification for invading Attica, setting up the Decalia Epitaikis Mos, the fort in Attica, and starting to build a fleet and so on. The Athenians in 414 invade Spartan territory, just as they had done in the previous phase of the war in 425, Pylos, Sphacteria. Now 414, they invade Epidavros Limira, Epidorus Limira on the eastern coast of Laconia. And that is the Casus Belli for 413 and following for the Spartans, as related 
specifically by Thucydides. Thank you. And just to get back to that support for Amorgi's revolt, which fails, should we see that as a crucial mistake, given that we're now going to have uh, the Persians coming in on the Spartan side? Do you think that really pushed the Persians towards the Spartan side? Yeah, it's a, a very good question. I think it required also diplomacy. So there is a Spartan called Lichas, Lichas, who played a key role in negotiations. And it wasn't immediately, um, as it were, a done deal, what exactly the terms on which the Spartans would make an agreement with the Persians for the Persian support against the Athenians. I mean, it's an obvious thing for the Spartans. It's what they'd wanted from 431. Get Persia on your side against the Athenians, and you're going to really disrupt the Athenians in their backyard, the Aegean. So there's nothing new about the triangularity of it. What's new is, and I think you're right, poking the bear, as I've heard it called, um, by supporting a satrapal revolt will not have endeared the Athenians to Darius. That is certainly correct. Okay, so another Athenian mistake, we think. So, Maria, we, we're going to enter into the either the Ionian War or the Decalean War. It's sometimes known by either name. And think about what's going on here. And Persia now becomes really important, as we've suggested. But we need to be careful here because there's not one united Persian front, is there? We've got two satrapies or provinces in this region. We've got Lydia, which is sort of central, what we would think of as uh, central Western Turkey. And then we've got Phrygia, which is up in the Hellespont region and towards Byzantium. And down in Lydia, the satrap is called Tissaphernes. Uh, and up in the Hellespont, which is obviously a crucial economic point for shipping coming from the Black Sea, we have Pharnabasus. So what then happens is rather odd because both of those satraps try to get Sparta to come and work with them. So why are these two satraps not working together? What's going on there? Well, first of all, as Paul said, these were very powerful people. And this affairness was tasked also with uh, settling things after the Amorgis uh, revolt. And a more general point that needs to be made about those satraps or local governors is that they were very powerful and they often were associated by types of kinship with the throne. And it was, as it were, part of the role. They competed with each other for royal favor. And uh, their job was to deliver the aims of the empire. Uh, now, in the context of the end of the Peloponnesian War, in Tissaphernes and Farnabazos in the Hellespont more, more specifically, they were the two options that the Spartans had to win the war. And for a long time, Alcibiades' plan was to persuade the Spartans that Tissaphernes was their best chance to make them win the war. And they believed him for a long time. In fact, Alcibiades' plan was to go back home. And in fact, we are told by Thucydides, what he really wanted is to allow the Athenians win the war after a pro prolonged period of attrition between Athens and Sparta. And what he was really saying to this Afernes, the satrap of the Ionia and Caria, this went together with the, with the Lydian satrapy, what was really advising this Afernes was to play Athens and Sparta between each other, against each other, and wear them out. And after this prolonged period, 
At the end of the day, his plan, we are told by Thucydides, was to allow the Athenians win the war. Why? Because the Athenians were good imperialists and they would serve the plans of the Persian Empire better. They would be more useful to the king in keeping those Greeks off the coast subdued rather than the Spartans who at the end of the day were the liberators of Greece. Okay, so yeah, Alcibiades, he's just all over the place, isn't he? So he, he he's working with Tissaphernes now and advising, first of all, the Spartans to uh, stick to Tissaphernes rather than Pharnabasus. Then he gets expelled or he has to re remove himself from Sparta because he's accused of sleeping with the king's wife. So he has to get out of Sparta pretty fast because his life's in danger. And where does he end up? He ends up in Persia. And he's, as you say, he encourages Tissaphernes to just wear the Athenians and the Spartans down. But he's looking for an Athenian victory. Partly he sells it to Tissaphernes because that's going to be better for the king. But of course, he wants to get back to Athens himself as well. He's, he's longing for home. Um, so thank you. Well, Paul, at that point, let's just talk a little bit about Athenian politics, because just around this time, we have an oligarchy which suddenly replaces the democracy for a few months. So uh, what is going on there and how is Alcibiades involved in this one? As Maria mentioned earlier, one of the Athenians' first responses to their terrible defeat in uh, Sicily was not to blame themselves. Thucydides is scathing about the masses. He's not a Democrat himself, by the way. And he thinks they should have taken the blame and carried the camp. Instead, a board of 10, probuloi, um, literally people who put councils forth or before uh, the assembly, but a kind of check on the assembly and on the council of 500, which is the assembly's steering committee. In other words, a somewhat modification of the radical extreme democracy that Athens had had since the four, late 460s and 450s. And there have always been at Athens, this is sometimes forgotten, a group of extreme, um, shall I call them right-wingers, people who hate the very notion of democratia, where they, the elite, are cratoed, that is, they are conquered and ruled by their inferiors, the world turned upside down. So they're willing to do, and now this is where Thucydides is not an extreme anti-democrat or an extreme pro-oligarch. He says this group of people, they eventually form a government, a regime, which we know as the regime of the 400. He says that they couldn't give a damn about what was best for Athens. They're only interested in their own power and ideology, which is that the few rich should rule without being responsible to the masses. And they conduct sort of um, agitprop. There is a group of youths paid by them, thugs basically, to beat up Democrats, leading pro-democratic politicians. And this is not the first time, and it won't be the last, where domestic politics trumps Athens's strategic needs in a war. And that, I think, is what Thucydides is getting at, partly when he talks about the internal disputes leading to mistakes. And so the first form of oligarchy is extreme, and it's led by a man called Antiphon, who some of us think was actually Thucydides' teacher, his rhetoric teacher, his um, oratory teacher. But anyway, regardless of that, we know that he was an extreme oligarch. 
That regime, however, upsets even moderate oligarchs who think that's too far. Um, we need to have a little bit of balance, a little bit more popular government, not totally oligarchic. So after four months, they are overthrown and succeeded by what's called a mixed regime. Thucydides says something terribly complimentary about it, something like the best form of government in my time. And he presumably means pragmatically, but he might mean theoretically. At any rate, they last only eight months because Athens is such by now a long tradition of normal politics being democratic, that any form, even a moderate form of oligarchy, seems unnatural. And so after eight months, in other words, a total of one year of oligarchy, where in 410, the Athenians regain their democracy. And this is very much relevant to Alcibiades. It's very much relevant to certain battles that are now going to be fought. And this is the last phase we're talking about of the Peloponnesian War as an entity as a whole. Well, let's just come back to that, because I, I think that if we hadn't realised that Alcibiades will just do absolutely anything to feather his own nest, I think he starts off being a supporter of the 400 and, and of the oligarchs. And then when they exclude him, he basically flips and he goes and supports the democratic Athenian fleet on, on Samos and is part of the uh, movement which gets the democracy restored. Is that correct? This is absolutely correct. And you've got to remember the Athenian fleet, let's say it's 60, 80, that's thousands of ordinary Athenian citizens who are away from, permanently away from Athens. They can't directly, through their votes in the assembly or in any other way, counteract oligarchy back in Athens. And indeed, you're quite right, Alcibiades appeals to them. And the only basis on which he can appeal to them is, oh, yeah, I'm just as good a Democrat as you. Now, Thucydides has, uh, at an earlier um, point, made it clear that for Alcibiades, ideology took very much second place to pragmatics. What he was interested in was Alcibiades and promoting Alcibiades. So any way to get back or any regime that will support what he wants to do for himself, he's going to put his weight behind that. You're quite right. And this is not yet how it happens, but eventually it is how it happens. It is the renewed, restored democracy that finally recalls Alcibiades. Well, thank you. Yeah, and you mentioned these naval victories. And so Athens in 411, 410, just around this time and after the restoration of democracy, suddenly has a really good surge in three naval battles up in around the area of the Hellespont. Uh, Sinosema, which is almost, I think, the last event recounted by Thucydides, where the Athenians have a naval victory. And Thucydides says this really gave the Athenians hope that they could win the war. And then our narrative moves on to either Xenophon or Diodorus, and they talk about uh, victories nearby as well at Abydos, and then particularly in 410 at Cyzicus, which is a, a whopping victory. So Athens seems to be up and running again and perhaps on course for victory. And at this point, the sources are rather unclear, but the Spartans over the next few years make either one or two peace offerings, just as they had done in 425, and say, come on, let's, let's call it a draw, let's call it off. Should the Athenians have taken those, uh, Paul? Well, it's the same point I made when you asked me the question really about 4254 and onwards. And the terms would be so tricky to work out 
that even when, as in 421, they did arrange treaty terms and not just peace, but also alliance, how long did they last? So in other words, I'm of the view that a peace without a decisive victory was not going to be a lasting peace. So in a way, the Athenians were doing, as Maria said earlier, quite surprisingly well, given the low ebb that they were at in 413, having lost so many men and ships in Sicily. They were doing amazingly well, but the best I think they could have hoped for was winning through again. And Sparta in 410 was not obviously very badly damaged. And therefore, you know, what sort of a peace would it be? What likelihood would there be of it lasting? Which side was going to, as it were, come out on top? What would stop them interfering in each other's sphere? It's not clear to me there was uh, a form of words that would have satisfied all those criteria. Okay, thank you. So it sounds like we don't feel that that is a, a serious Athenian mistake. They were probably being realistic in carrying it, on the war. It, well, let me move forward. When right at the end, the Athenians are starving, they're, they're about to all die from starvation rather than make peace. Cleophon says, whatever you do, do not make peace with the Spartans. They agree with him. You know, they're, they're going to die as a result. That just shows you how by that stage, I don't think it's quite come to this, but no accommodation is possible. The Athenians get to a point where they just feel, we've fought all this, we've lost all this, we're going to come up with a decisive result somewhere. We're going to go down fighting, or not at all. Well, that links very well to Maria's point, I think, about national character. So, Maria, let's come across to you, because in 407, we have a, one of those moments in history which changes everything. So up until this point, Tissaphernes has not really been backing Sparta financially in the way that he said that he would. But this all changes in 407 when the second son of Darius II is appointed to be commander in the West. And he's known as, as Cyrus the Younger, not to be confused with the founder, really, of the Persian Empire. And this Cyrus, I think he's only 16 years old, so he'll be younger than most of our A-level students listening to this. And he is sent down... And this makes all the difference. He's prepared to fund things. So why do we get this change of policy and what's in it for Cyrus to get this war sorted in favour of Sparta? Well, yes, Cyrus, again, we come across the problem of our sources. It is important to see a little bit how this young prince is presented. I mean, Xenophon uh, has a beautiful encounter between Cyrus and, and Lysander in his gardens. And uh, although they're very different sort of personalities, Lysander is a Spartan and able generals, Cyrus is somewhat soft, but with a very charismatic personality, leadership. And uh, he undertakes the task to deliver for his father in those uh, parts of the world. So he's presented by Xenophon in a very favorable light for obvious reasons, because when he revolted, when he went against his brother Artaxerxes II in 401, and he lost his life eventually, Xenophon, with 10,000 Greeks, had joined his, his army. So Xenophon, there's something apologetic there. On the other hand, in Diodorus is a different uh, somewhat uh, picture. And in Ctesias, again, because Ctesias was a doctor in the court of Artaxerxes II, so in the enemy of Cyrus, when the two brothers came to blows, 
Thesis is a different picture to, to sketch again, to, to provide. So uh, the sources are important. Nevertheless, he was a remarkable personality and his role, as I said, was to deliver for, for the king. So he started pumping money to the Spartans. He increased the payment of the sailors, which was cut down by the Sapphernes, and that immediately made a difference. I think that's really important to say that we don't have hugely reliable sources about Cyrus. And of course, what we don't have, and it's important always for our students to be aware of this, is we don't have the Persian version here. We don't have a Persian historian telling us what's in it for them and, and what's driving their policy. So we really, I guess, have to guess. But could it be that Cyrus has got an eye on the fact that he's got an older brother who's going to become king when his father dies, and he's not terribly happy about this? And so if he has a big success out in the West with this job, it strengthens his own position to possibly challenge his brother for the kingship. Is that what might be happening, do we think, Maria? Yes, definitely. His actions are related to his hegemonic ambitions. We should uh, we should take that for granted. Uh, and Paul, you want to say something there? Yeah, if I could just pitch in Chercher la femme, and um, Artaxerxes, as he becomes the second, and Cyrus were full brothers. Um, the Persian monarchy operated a harem system, so a Persian king would have several wives, but his principal wife, that is Darius's, was Parizatis, who was the mother of both Artaxerxes II and Cyrus. And I believe those sources who see her as a major factor in persuading Darius, her husband, to send very young, only 16, though remember Alexander the Great was 16 when he became regent of Macedon in the 4th century BC. So some individuals are capable of showing extreme promise at a very young age. What I think it signifies is Darius persuaded by various artists or Darius making up his own mind. What's going on in the West is, for the moment, the number one foreign policy issue of the Achaemenid Empire which, remember, stretched all the way to Afghanistan and Pakistan in the east, up into Central Asia, as well as to the Asia Minor seaboard in the west. So it's not common for Greek affairs to be number one in the minds of a ruler based in Iran. OK, thank you. So we've, we've talked about one individual there, the, the mother of Cyrus and Artaxerxes. We just want to think about the impact that individuals can have on history, because, of course, this is a always some a talking point for historians and one of the features paul one of the features of of this era is that lysander the spartan is appointed as the spartan admiral over in the aegean and he and cyrus if we believe the sources have something of a bromance they get on really really well um and you know does this show that individual relationships really are important in changing the course of history well, there's a general, as it were, theoretical problem in all historiography, the role of the what's sometimes called the event-making hero. And I've written about this myself in relation to a particular Spartan king, Agisilas II, who just happened to be the younger beloved of Lysander in Sparta back in an earlier period of Spartan history. So Lysander's a man of immense um, connections right at the heart of the Spartan policy-making machine. Hence his appointment as admiral. The Spartans had a particular word for it, and you could only have it once. But Lysander was so influential that he got himself wangled back 
when legally he shouldn't have been reappointed, but that's for the future. In 407, he does encounter Cyrus. They do hit it off. Lysander's a much older man, and uh, I, you can never say exactly what is the chemistry, what is the cause of the bromance, which I love that word. But it is precisely what does seem to have happened. And the bit that Maria mentioned about them chatting together in Cyrus's paradise. Well, Spartans didn't actually garden very much. But Persian rulers, kings, grandees, they loved their gardens, in which, of course, they also hunted. I mean, they're not just flower gardens. So there is something going on here. Now, I, as a historian, am a little bit uh, sceptical of the notion that individuals make history all by themselves. They don't. They make it under the conditions in which they are brought up, reared, and in which they find themselves. The key, the clue, the, the gift is to be able to turn the events or the context to the direction that you particularly want. So what Lysander needs is an absolutely steady supply of more money such that there is a longer period to train, to recruit and train sailors to row these very complicated trireme warships with which he's going to take on and, of course, eventually beat the Athenians. So what he wants is a stability of supply and to have somebody there who is permanently going to be pro-Spartan for a considerable time at any rate. Okay, thank you. So everything has changed in 407. And then we're going to look at three potential Athenian mistakes which bring us down to 404 and the end of the war. So the first potential mistake is this battle of Notion, which is on the Asiatic coast of the Aegean. And very simply, Alcibiades leaves his helmsman in charge of the Athenian fleet. He's called Antiochus, I think. And he basically says, whatever you do, don't engage in battle. And Alcibiades heads off and Antiochus does engage in battle. And the Athenians lose that battle. And as a result, the Athenians are so annoyed with Alcibiades, they blame Alcibiades that they exile him again, or they effectively force him to take himself into exile. So... Was this just another bit of Athenian politicking where they got rid of their best general, Maria? Well, perhaps we can think again of this wider factor that Paul mentioned too, of looking at history and history writing as history as a narrative of factors and as a narrative of individuals. Again, this, this question applies here too. I mean, Thucydides... One of the reasons why he's considered to be a modern historian from antiquity is because he has allowed us to see the perspective of deeper factors of, wider, of the wider picture. At the same time, and perhaps paradoxically, he's so good at attributing personal motives and connecting events with personal motives. We find that in the Pleistarnax and Nicias piece. It is about what we call today, we call today personal vision, we find that in Alcibiades as well. Now, Notion, of course, is outside Thucydides' narrative, uh, and to go to this particular point, but again, we see the Athenians not being able to forgive this from Alcibiades. They've had enough with him, to put it simply. Although he didn't mess it up himself, it was his second in command, Antiochus, who didn't listen to him and engaged in battle, and the Athenians simply wouldn't forgive him. By doing so, of course, they condemned their own selves because by losing Alcibiades, 
they lost the single chance they had at the time of a naval general in those areas who could win them the war. Okay, so we we think that's a very clear Athenian mistake there, is getting rid of Alcibiades after Notion. Now, Paul, if things hadn't got bad enough, the following year, the Athenians have a naval victory at Argonusai. Well done them. But they turn it into a disaster, we might say, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, really, because they have this victory against Sparta. And then they put on trial six of their generals who have been at that victory because they had not collected the soldiers who were in the water, some of them dead, some of them the dead bodies, we think, and some of them people still alive. And people back in Athens were so incensed by the fact that their relatives had been left unrecovered after the battle that they put these six generals on trial together, which was illegal because they're supposed to be tried individually, and they have them all executed. So having got rid of Alcibiades, you now get rid of six other key military leaders. Surely that's a serious mistake by the Athenians. It's another case, um, not the last, of the um, Athenian democracy trumping strategy. In other words, ideology and democratic politics, because the situation post the victory was exploited by a politician who we know later, his name is Theramenes, emerges as an oligarch. I mean, a very extreme right-wing oligarch, not quite as extreme as some others, but nevertheless, and one who is soft, shall we say, on Sparta. And I, I pointed out that in the Peloponnesian War, there is a widespread, Thucydides makes a big point of this, disagreement among um, people within the relevant um, states as between oligarchs and Democrats. And on balance and in general, oligarchs support Sparta and vice versa, and Democrats support Athens and vice versa. So what's going on at the end? This is the first major sign after 41110. Remember those oligarchic counter coups in 406 is beginning of the end game, whereby democratic politicking of a very nasty kind involving, as you've said, the execution illegal of six of the 10 generals of one year. By the way, all eight generals were summonsed. Two of them very sensibly did not pitch up at that assembly meeting, and they therefore escaped, and they were pro-Democrats. They pop up later, playing a key role resisting the pro-Spartan anti-democratic movement, which takes over Athens, exploited by Sparta at the very end of the Peloponnesian War. So um, the Argonese trial and the Argonese post-eventum manoeuvring in Athens are indeed yet another major mistake. Okay, and then that brings us almost to the end. Uh, 405, Igos Botomoi, which is a, a site up again in the Hellespont. And Xenophon tells us, and also it's in Plutarch, that the Athenians are beached at a place called Igos Potomoi. And Alcibiades arrives. He's in exile. He's living in a castle nearby, we think. But he's still trying to help Athens. And he says, this is not a good place to moor your ships move it a few miles up the strait. It's a much better place to fight. And they basically tell him to get stuffed, go away, we're fed up with you, Arcebides. So they ignore his advice and they have a catastrophic loss. This really is the, the moment that they lose the Hellespont. And once they've lost the Hellespont, they don't get their grain supplies and they're put under a siege in Athens. So again, Maria, is this just another very poor mistake, not listening to Alcibiades there? It is a, a fatal mistake. 
again, we see individual motivation, we see problems and the attitudes of the Athenian generals towards Alcibiades, they were dismissive. Alcibiades tried, uh, as you said, James, tried to, to tell them to, to moor the, the ships elsewhere, but they didn't listen to him. And that was fatal. And it, it should be said that battle didn't even take place. The, the ships were beached because Lysander's stratagem was to allow them to relax because he wouldn't attack them for five days. And on the fifth day, when he attacked, they were unprepared. And it is indicative that only Conon, the able Athenian general, survives. I mean, he, his own ship, seven in his entourage, and the ship called Paralos, which is the, the, the Athenian uh, ship on state missions, which eventually brought the sad news to Athens. So yes, Egospotamoi was, was a disgrace in the sense that they, you know, Alcibiades wasn't listened to, and it was a defeat that could have very well been avoided. All they had to do is just fight. They didn't even fight. Okay, well, thank you. Well, I th we've looked at lots and lots of reasons that the Athenians made mistakes. Paul, I just wonder whether we're being a bit unkind to the Spartans and the Peloponnesians here. Can we identify really positive decisions that they made, or was it just a matter of them sitting in and waiting for Athens to make another mistake? If you believe Thucydides, the Spartans' pronounced objective at the very beginning of the war was to liberate those Greeks who were in what we call the Athenian Empire, who therefore were not free. In fact, as Thucydides later makes clear, they're not principally motivated by that noble objective, but they're principally concerned about their own security through their Peloponnesian League. And secondly, they're not concerned with the absolute liberation of any other Greek city, but with whether or not it was an oligarchy. They always supported oligarchy. So to me, when the uh, Spartans got into bed with the Persians, in other words, in order to achieve their ultimate strategic objectives, which were not altruistic, they're prepared to sacrifice the freedom of Greek cities to Persia, because that was the Persians' condition of giving the Spartans money, that the Greek cities of Asia fall back again under the Persian Empire from which the Athenians had liberated them in the 470s and following. That to me is a big blot on the escutcheon of the Spartans. It actually really undermines their terrific role in the first Persian War of the beginning of the 5th century, when they genuinely resisted on behalf of all Greeks, as well as themselves, and achieved the liberation of Greece from the potential of Persian domination in 480-479. Okay, well, thank you. So, so perhaps not the most admirable set of motives from Sparta. Well, Maria, let's just think very finally, what happens then? So Athens is put under siege, it is defeated, and we have a, a passage in Xenophon telling us about the, the final surrender of Athens, don't we? Yes, well, to the credit of the Spartans, and despite the suggestions of Sparta's allies, uh, they didn't destroy Athens because it was a city that had offered such a good service to, to the Greeks. And then again, we are meant to think of Athens' service in the Persian Wars and to Greek freedom. And as Paul mentioned previously, they resisted. Even at this low point, they were prepared to face starvation rather than capitulate. 
But eventually uh, they do give up the city and they make terms with the Spartans against, as I said, the, the view of the Spartan allies. And the conditions were that they would uh, demolish the long walls, the walls that protected the, the, the city, and they would keep only 12 ships. And uh, they would allow the return of exiles, and they were to follow the Spartans wherever they led, by land and at sea. That was quite humiliating for, for the Athenians. And as the Spartans did quite frequently at this point in time, the result inside the city, in the administration of the city, was the regime of the of the 30 tyrants, which lasted eight months. It was a very harsh regime, and it's described also, we, we know it from Lysias as well, and his own uh, family involvement with his brother. And it was uh, a very unpalatable period, even for Lysander himself. Okay, and yes, that 30 tyrants leads us a few years later to the, the trial of Socrates, who's so associated with those. And if students are doing the Athens depth study, they should be making those links. So I think at this point, we'll have to call it to a close. I'm hugely grateful to both Maria and Paul because we've covered, well, 27 years, 28 years, I guess, because we started in 432. And it's complicated. Uh, it's difficult in places to understand it. But both of you have made it so clear for us and I'm sure this will be a very, very useful resource for our students. So uh, unless, have either of you got any final words? Thank you for being a most genial host. It's a very, very difficult role you've had to play. And uh, Maria and I are intensely grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much, James. And thank you, Paul. Well, thank you both very much indeed. Make sure you follow the Classics Podcast on Spotify so that you'll be the first to hear about each new episode. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you follow us on Instagram at The Classical Pod. For bonus materials, check out our website, classicalassociation.org forward slash podcast.